Hi, I'm Edward Cohen. Welcome to Tangent. Today on Tangent, we have Marcus Rader, founder and CEO at Hostaway, all-in-one vacation rental software and Airbnb management system. This past summer, Hostaway raised $175 million in the largest single capital raise in the vacation rental tech space to date. Hi, Marcus. Where does this podcast find you? Hey, thank you very much for uh, for having me. I'm calling in from uh, Toronto, Ontario, and I uh, I tend to spend about six months of the year here, and the rest I do traveling. Beautiful. Let's just, I mean, you travel, uh, you embody what you do, basically. Let's uh, jump right into it. You started Hostaway in 2015, and since then it has grown to host more than 100,000 short-term rental and vacation properties across 100 countries. Take us to those early days. Um, how did you get started and how did you get to here? We're a typical overnight success story where everything <laughs> failed a hundred times. Actually, yesterday I had to, we had our eight year anniversary because we decided to found the company exactly eight years ago. And, you know, the amount of, we, we did record sales last month, but that's nothing new. We, we always do record sales, like we go higher and higher. But I had to remind the team that the amount of, of customers that joined us just last month is the same amount that it took us six years to get. Like the total, six years of sales, six, six years of, of customer acquisition, we got it now in one month. That's what happens when you do, do things consistently over a, a long period of time. And uh, the weirdest part is that these seven, eight years that we've been on this, According to investors, that's super short. There's many tech companies that, that reach the status where we are. But when you look into the background, they've actually been going at it for 20 years. And maybe they changed business model many times. We, we sort of had a one-shot one home run here where we, we just did one thing and we did it consistently over time and it became a, a massive success. We started with a bang, literally. A lot of people died. We were at Airbnb Open 2015 in Paris, uh, and it was interrupted by the Balaclan bombings. So it was only one and a half days. Um, we were there to verify a theory that there's a lot of professional property managers in the Airbnb space. At the time, it was still called the Airbnb space. Today, it's, it's known as short-term rentals. It's known as vacation rentals and, and a lot of other terminology. But back then, it was clearly called Airbnb. And we, we got what we, what we hoped for. We found a ton of property managers all around the world who were managing hundreds of units, and they were indeed looking for software. So that's what we were starting to build. And that's the journey that we're still on today. Fascinating, fascinating. I mean, we're going to talk about Airbnb, and we're going to dive deep into Hostaway's business model, how you're doing it. But before then, I want to talk about the state of the short-term rental market. There's arguably more demand now than ever for the product. Uh, people are doing not only short-term stays, but they're all doing staycations or work from remote where they rent uh, with their family, go away. Lots of trends happening. Uh, we also know there's a lot of uh, regulation coming, especially in a few uh, US states like New York and California. But uh, let's, let's put some numbers to it and I want to hear your perspective. So the travel tech industry saw a steady increase in startup funding between 2016 and 2019. Naturally, it dropped in once the pandemic hit in 2020. But since then, it's, it's bouncing back. And in 2022, the travel industry 
garnered almost $6 billion globally. Now, what are you seeing on the market uh, right now? So the, uh, the, there's a lot of discussions on the market. There's been many macro changes in the last year. First of all, on the tech side, funding is basically non-existent these days. I mean, you're going to get deals, but they're going to be bad. And uh, it's pretty bad for a company to take a bad deal. On the real estate side, we have uh, massive increases in insurance rates and interest rates. This is, uh, this is a pretty bad thing for investments overall. But to counteract that, what's actually happening and what really amazes me is how people think that they're always so unique. So, for example, the vacation rental industry, as much as I love it, they think it's a unique industry, when in fact, it's the same as every other industry out there. What's happening now is a combined effort of outside regulation and inside regulation. Basically, the people are in there, they want to protect their assets. And they want to protect their business, but they also want to prevent others from coming. It's called uh, going up the ladder and then pulling the ladder up uh, from beneath you. Talking about uh, hotels here? That's, that's certainly a big influence as well. And I, I remember having a, a really astonishing conversation with a lady in a swimming pool on uh, Fort Myers Beach before Hurricane Ian. Uh, she owned four vacation rentals and... Uh, she was also running an irrigation company, so they installed these uh, these cables that water the lawn. And um, she was complaining that she couldn't find any staff because they only have work six months a year, but they need to have licensed people for that. You can't take random people. So I asked, well, why, why do they need licenses? I mean, that's pretty basic work. And she said, oh, I was actually the one who was leading the lobbying effort to regulate this. So, so she had put in... You know, she was thinking she's now a big name in the industry, and now mm-hmm, we're going to mm-hmm. regulate it, make it hard for others to enter. But at the same time, she had made it hard for herself. There's a subreddit dedicated to this called Leopards Ate My Face, um, <laughs> that I'm a big fan of. But this is what's happening in the in the industry right now. There's a lot of a lot of uh, confusion, but it's it's nothing nothing unheard of at all. This is what usually happens when industries mature. And this is, yeah, you can blame the hotels and you can blame other people. But, uh, I mean, we have, to be honest, we should just be looking ourselves in the mirror. At the same time, there's a lot of, a lot, uh, well, not a lot, but a small part of society has got very rich on real estate since the 28 or 2008 crash. And as a result of that, they want to make sure that they stay rich and they prevent others from becoming rich. And this can, especially in, in North America, you can see this in the, uh, not in the vacation areas and not in the cities, but you see this in the in-betweens, in the rural areas where people moved when offices shut down. That's where you see these small communities that used to be cottage communities. Usually they're surrounded by mountains, maybe a lake. And all of a sudden... People don't want others to come there and rent out their places. And there have been, been smaller communities that have completely banned short-term rentals, but then they get very upset when, when their restaurants shut down because there's no visitors there. And they get very sad when there's no grocery store anymore because nobody's living there. But what they're really doing there is creating an area for the elite. Basically, there's out of the people that buy vacation homes, I can split them into two groups. One group can afford to buy it and just keep it empty, then pay for people to come and mow the lawn and check that it's okay, and use it for one 
or two weeks a year. Those people are usually quite wealthy, but they're in a minority. The bigger part of people who invest in vacation rentals, they actually need some income. It lowers the cost, so they rent them out. So what these communities are saying is they don't want the people who are upper middle class. They only want the super elite to come there. Problem with the super elite is they're very busy. They don't have time to visit your local restaurant. So you're shooting yourself in the Yeah, sounds like a lose-lose. And finding a way to coexist, I think, uh, is, is the only way forward for this in-between towns. Um, let's talk about some specific trends you're seeing across different markets. Before then, I just want to say something that's been fascinating to me is how two of the most, if not the most iconic millennial marketplaces, if you will, talking about Airbnb and Uber, I mean, they, they've managed not only to carve themselves a meaningful, you know, and now short-term rentals as a whole, carve themselves a meaningful market share in their respective industries, but also they've reshaped legacy industries completely. Uh, you know, the taxis in New York City now have an app and no more $1 million medallions and Airbnb. Uh, you know, we have now entire hotel chains, Marriott Hilton doing Airbnb-esque hotels. Um, but the difference with when it comes to regulation and, and internet companies, Amazon, Facebook, I mean, they, they didn't get regulated as they were being launched, right? Airbnb was getting regulated right off the bat because it represented the internet moving into your neighborhood, right? So yes, Facebook and Amazon are now fighting lobbying and regulation, but they have you know, the largest army of lobbyists in Washington and short-term rentals being regulated when it was being born. You know, it didn't feel like a, like a fair fight, if you will. No, it never, it never was, a, was a fair fight. And I've been saying for many years that if you, if you operate in cities, uh, whether they're regulated or not, those regulations are bound to change. Um, assuming it's a popular city, if, if it's a dying city, then you probably don't have to worry, but then your business won't do as well, um, either. And I mean, it benefits mo most of these regulations when they come into place, they benefit those who are already in the business. I think New York is an extreme case, but on the other hand, you weren't running businesses in, in New York, there's not that many successful operators in New York before regulation, unless you have a commercial property, in which case, of course, right. hotel can run it. But what most of these, um, these regulations tend to do, they grandfather father in those who are already there, and then they don't let anyone new in. And that's something that, that is very popular politically, because means that the people who manage and own the vacation rentals, they obviously support it. I mean, who wouldn't want to do the same job and get double the pay? But it also benefits hotels because hotels, they do want people to come there. They do want people to organize events, maybe a wedding, get their family together, get more people into the area because it benefits hotels. But what they don't want is low prices, which is what you get with fair competition. So both vacation rental owners and hotels, they benefit from unfair uh, competition, which means regulation. Yeah, I think, I mean, certainly some politicians in New York have decided to make uh, short-term rentals the, the piñata, if you will, or the culprit of, of the housing shortage, for example, um, instead of you know, looking inwards and, and why isn't there more housing being approved faster in New York, or, or why aren't there incentives in place for investors to create more housing, and, and naturally the hotel lobby. 
uh, is is a lot you know behind it all um, instead of competing. California, on the other hand, is approaching it with a new tax that is incoming uh, by 2025. That, from what I understand, it's not going to apply to hotels. So uh, a lot of short-term rental operators are switching to long-term leasing. Yeah, that's uh, that's a tough one to to battle. But I think also usually people have associations with the word tax. If there's because uh, you can. You can play around with market dynamics. I studied uh, economics in in university, so so you can play around with market dynamics in many different ways. I mean, one of them is to create unfair competition, and that can be done through regulation. And some people like that. For example, a hotel hotels in New York are loving it right now that it's unfair. But then, moment you you use the word tax, people have have a different connotations and they tend to at least on social media usually not in real life but uh right. on social media they tend to be very aggressive and say oh i'm gonna i'm gonna move out of the, this country it's going all the hell it's uh, terrible but but it's it's the exact same thing and i think actually california is onto something there because hotels can never offer the experience that a vacation rental can um and the other way around. I mean, I was at a, I stayed at a hotel for a week last uh, last week in Orlando, and they had a massive pool and there were activities for the for the kids. I've never been in a vacation rental that has a pool that's uh, bigger than the entire neighborhood and where people come out and uh, and take care of your kids for you and uh, and throw games and they get to meet other kids. Like there's these are different products. And one of them is is a commodity, hotels, and the other one is not a commodity. It's a, it's a unique experience. So I think taxing it makes sense. The rich want to want to pay to have that. Interesting. So the issue may be, or the you know the timing with with higher interest rates or or being over levered. Uh, some you know operators that started during COVID, maybe that that's where the numbers don't pencil out for for some of the operators. Um, but I like your your contrarian take that because it's a an experience and it's a it's a unique product and then it should be taxed. There's been complaints on social media about you know excessive uh, cleaning fees or excessive uh, expectations from the hosts and operators from the renters to do the chores. Uh, basically, switching the responsibility of of some of the operations and maintenance to the renters. Uh, and, and it's something that uh, Airbnb and, and and the likes are are looking to tackle. Uh, what do you think happened there, or how do you think we we got here? So I think that's a trend overall across all industries right now. Um, companies are finding ways to monetize their their fees better. I think uh, if you ever tried Uber Eats, you'll see that there's fifteen fees added on. Uh, same thing can be said about. Um, Buying a concert ticket, Ticketmaster. Why do you need to charge me three fifty to deliver an electronic ticket that I'm actually already paying for? I would understand if you delivered a paper ticket because that actually costs money. But yeah, that's that's just the consumer sentiment right now. the The irony is that within the hosting community, as it's as it's called, that means property owners and property managers, they're uh, referred to as hosts. They don't always see this as something positive. I mean, what the consumer wants is one price. That's uh, what millennials and Gen Z wants. If they want to pay a hundred, they want to pay a hundred. They don't want anything. Not a hundred ten. Not surprise 100. fees. 
yeah, they want to pay a uh, hundred, and it makes complete sense that Airbnb allows you to to bake in the Airbnb fee and the cleaning fee into your price. So if a yep. customer wants to pay a hundred, they actually pay a hundred. But a lot of property managers are against this because then they have to pay out of that one hundred into Airbnb, and they have to pay their cleaners. And they, they they don't see the big picture here. That is, it's the same money. It's just a marketing gimmick. But by saying, "Oh, I don't, I want you know on my listing," so so Airbnb has this option where you can take. So Airbnb splits their income by taking some from the guests, usually a lot, about ten, fifteen uh, percent, then a bit from the from the host, usually around three percent. But what you can do is do an all inclusive pricing. So instead of that, let's say. 16%, you pay 15% to Airbnb, which means that you can advertise the price as no fees. But a lot of hosts don't understand that, that this is, this is exactly what consumers want. This is what they choose. They want to pay 100, they're going to pay 100, not 119 and 85. I think there's, there's definitely a lot of uh, behavioral psychology, behavioral economics here going on. And, you know, one could argue as well that you know, I want transparency in terms of the, the breakdown of the pricing, right? However, we're finding out that actually most people rather not and, and feel like the surprise fees at the end, uh, you know, kind of throws them, throws them all out of their equation on how much they were expecting uh, to pay. Um, yeah, and consumers just... are, are the, the lead driver here. I mean, if, um, let, let's say you want to you wanna rent a place for a thousand. If consumers consistently choose a place that costs one thousand plus three hundred in fees, rather than choosing a place that costs thirteen hundred upfront, then companies will have no incentive to give transparent pricing. If consumers prefer non-transparent pricing and they vote with every single dollar they spend, then obviously the companies are not going to do anything. One interesting market, though, is EU where they tend to say that the average consumer is, uh, is pretty stupid and <laughs> needs protection, and then they go in and regulate stuff. And that's actually quite brilliant. That's why my new iPhone 15 here has a USB-C port so that I can use any damn cable I want and charge it anywhere, anytime I want, which is amazing. But... That's what you wouldn't get that in an unregulated market because if you think about it, the average consumer, fifty percent of the consumers out there are more stupid than the average consumer, and they don't always vote correctly with their dollars. That is interesting. I the the first book that comes to mind is Misbehaving by Richard Thaler, recommended and a nudge as well in terms of people's incentives and how we as humans are systematically irrational and and we exactly we, we yeah even though something may be objectively better for our wallet or for our well-being we may still do something that feels better but is objectively worse off for our intentions i'm, I'm from a marketing background our entire industry wouldn't exist if people just made rational decisions <laughs> I'm, marketing is uh, if you turn on the tv you'll see a bunch of car ads but none of them have the stuff that matters. None of them tell 
okay, this is the engine that's the most efficient, uh, low fuel economy. Hey, you know, when you get into a car crash, this is the car where your kids are going to survive it and not die. Nobody mm-hmm. talks about that. Instead, they just show some mountains and then there's a <laughs> lake and then there's a, a surfboard and then there's some stars. Like, what does that have to do with a car? Absolutely nothing. But it's a great uh, story for some. We love yes. a story. We love a story. Yes. We love and being every told car stories. out there has the same story. You know, it's, right. the, it's the mountain, it's the trees, it's the city. And yeah. none of them are talking about the cars, which is the product that actually matters. I mean, when you buy a car, you're buying a car. You're not buying a mountain. Like, <laughs> they give you a mountain in a box. That's funny. Taking a slight tangent uh, to what you said earlier. Uh, I, for one, as a capitalist, uh, I think we should let competition, you know, we should let the open market do its thing. But, you know, we, we've realized that some regulation is, uh, is needed in some places, and it's all about where do we draw the line, right? If we draw the line too far, then we have to draw it shorter. But I think your example with USB-C, I mean, I'm, I'm very thankful for that EU standardizing or forcing Apple to cut their nonsense with, uh, you know, changing the dongles every time. I'm just thinking, imagine if we didn't have standardized light bulb sockets. You know, those are the little things that really go a long way in terms of scaling innovation and, and spreading it to everyone. Exactly. So, I mean, 400 years ago, there was this dude called Adam Smith, and he invented this term called free market, which is something that a lot of people believe in, including me. But what many companies and individuals tend to ignore is that the free market includes, and this was for, this is 400 years old, but nobody has come up with better theories since. He, he had a theory that there's something called market failure. That's when the free market is doing its thing, and then it fails. I think we can all agree that 2008, the way banks were operating, they were running a free market model, and it failed. A lot of people went homeless. A lot of people didn't have food to eat. And a lot of banks even didn't survive 2008 because of a market failure. But a very common market failure is when you get a monopoly. That's when you don't have a free market anymore. Regulation is the best way. So according to Adam Smith, the only way to guarantee that you have a free market is by regulating it to make sure that it stays a free market. Right. But a lot of people get this backwards. They think any regulation is against the free market, when actually it's the opposite. You need regulation in order to have a free market, because otherwise you'll end up with, for example, monopoly. Absolutely. Now, let's talk about HostAway, all-in-one vacation rental software and Airbnb management system. All-in-one, what does that mean? All-in-one means that it can serve the needs of pretty much anyone that is running a vacation rental business. Whether you, you own one property or you own 10 or you, many of our customers, they own a couple, then they manage their friends and, and families. So maybe they're real estate business properties. And then we have customers who have hundreds. And I think our biggest customer right now has 8,000 properties that they manage on behalf of the, the owner or rent them out. Only one means that every aspect you can think of when it comes to your business. And I'll, I'll, I won't speak in industry-specific terms, but more generic terms that apply to any business, your marketing, your sales, managing your staff, your CRM, your accounting, your money that's coming in, your money that's going out. 
the communication that's needed to run your everyday business, all of that can be managed through one platform. And that's exactly what Hostaway does. Fascinating. I mean, not having to use or rely on different software or integrating, um, I think that saves a lot of headaches, especially for, for mom and pops, but also for large operations. Exactly. And it's, it's quite unique when you, when you think about it, because we, we, for example, we are in the software industry. There is no all-in-one solution for the software industry. We have to pay 50, 60 different softwares. We have just the sales team. I think they have five different softwares that they work with. And it would be great if there was an all-in-one solution, but not all industries have that. But for example, restaurants, they are one that have all-in-one solutions. These uh, point-of-sale systems, they, on hand, they can print the tickets for the kitchen, but they can also manage the bookings on your own website, the reservations. So they are all-in-one systems. And they also know who's coming to work now, whose shift is starting right now. Vacation rentals, restaurants, hotels, and airlines are a couple of those that have all-in-one systems, but not every industry has them. That's uh, very cool. So let's talk about a bit about your user base, because I, I find it fascinating when, you know, the same, not the same exact experience probably, but the same company, same product serving a wide variety of, you know, sizes of operators, but also across different geographies. So talk about, you know, your user base, how do you handle, uh, you know, delivering value and, and keeping them engaged and solving their problems for such different types of uh, operators and across different jurisdictions? Yeah, it's a very fascinating topic. And actually, one reason why we have been able to build this company so big so fast is that we, we have taken a very humble approach and say, we are not unique. We are running a business just like every other business on the planet. And we can learn from their mistakes and their failures and their successes and just figure out what works and what doesn't because other other companies have failed before us we don't have to have to fail one of the things that that has been the word on the market ever since i i joined this industry is that is fragmented and that's very true um, you're sitting in new york versus sitting in california or florida or texas your view on a short-term rental is going to be completely different especially if we talk about your local short-term rentals i mean if you're sitting yeah. in in New York City, you're not going to have any short-term rentals. It's that simple. And um, then again, if you're sitting somewhere in Southwest Florida, then every second house is a short-term rental. And that's just the way it's going. <laughs> what we saw was that there were a lot of consolidation efforts going on in the space, and they all somehow failed. But what it, what it boils down to is that there's different target groups when it comes to geography. For example... If you want to be big in New York, uh, you can have an American solution. But if you want to be big in France, which is a way bigger market than New York, then an American solution is not going to do it. You need a French solution. That's just one example. And another thing is that these, these solutions, they, they focus on different segments. Typically, they call them small, SMB, and enterprise. How you then define these buckets differs from company to company, which makes it more confusing. When we made our, have made our infrastructural decisions, there's always the question, okay, should we, should we serve this segment or that segment? And the answer has always been both. And many aspects of the product, they scale as you grow. So the product works in one way if you have one property, but the moment you add your second property, it works in a different way. 
And same thing when you reach 100 properties, the same product works in a different way. That may sound confusing, but it's actually the same same thing. I mean, it, many other industries. I'll give uh, a product that probably everyone has heard of, Gmail. If you're one person using Gmail, it works differently than if you're an organization of 10,000 right. people that are yeah. using Gmail. But it's the same product. It manages to scale from one person to 10,000 people. It right. just works slightly differently. But many Very things... Same. And that's exactly how our product is built as well, so that it can serve one property or 10,000 properties. It looks similar, but it's going to work a bit different. Very flexible, multiple, and scalable. That's great. Yeah, talking about the different markets, just uh, listening to Brian Chesky from Airbnb the other day, how he describes inbound, outbound, or a mix of markets. For example, you have Germany. Uh, you know, Germans love to travel, so they are considered an outbound because they do get tourism, but not as much as Germans travel abroad. Italy and Spain, they're inbound markets because they're top tourism destinations, while Italians and Spanish don't travel as much as they receive the tourism. France is both. They have inbound and they have outbound. So just uh, interesting, the, the different nuances, even in, in markets that may seem similar, uh, there's still different intricacies there. Yeah, something that I think a lot of people in the industry fail to recognize is the, the business model of the OTA. For example, a, a common misconception is that Airbnb... The online our, travel agencies, right? Yeah, a common misconception is that they, they bring together the traveler and the one offering accommodation. That's about as far from the truth as you can get. The truth is that they're, they're marketing engines. What they do is they are generating demand. So they're running ad campaigns to get people to do certain things. For example, book a vacation rental in Germany or in Spain. But then that has a certain cost attached to it. That cost can be different. Let's say you want to advertise a Spanish vacation rental. The cost will be different whether you advertise it to someone in New York City or someone in London or someone in The cost in of Brazil. acquisition massively yes. different. And this is the primary driver of their business is who is able to optimize this marketing spend the best. That's where they spend, I would say, 90% of their energy is optimizing that demand generation and then making sure they have matching supply. So they're not actually trying to connect the travelers. Instead, they're trying to find the most cost-effective marketing solution. And and for those of you who don't believe me, just, just pick a couple of random locations in Florida, let's say Tampa, Naples, Miami, and Orlando, and then Google vacation rental for each of those locations. And what you'll see in the adverts is that you'll find different companies who are on the top. You'll find in one market, you have Airbnb who's on the top. A different market, you'll find Verbo on the top. And that's because they have optimized their spending so well that they know exactly what one click is going to generate in that work. I think those CAC calculations, cost of acquisition, it uh, definitely gets, gets so uh, granular when you get to the, the market, uh, mar market by market. Marcus, you come from the ed tech space. I think education is how we get better as individuals, how we get better as humans. What can real estate technology, what can the travel technology industry learn from ed tech? 
Uh, great question. I think nobody has ever asked me that. I think one thing that I've seen in successful edtech companies is that they are often people who have a passion but have very little expertise in the in the industry, and they are typically quite experienced in technology. I'll, I'll give an example. There's a there's a company in Finland right now called Word Dive. They are offering English courses on a mobile app, and they're wildly successful all over Europe for for high school because they have to do their exams. But the background there is not education. It's actually mobile games. The founders have been doing mobile games for for decades before getting into this. That's very contrasting to the vacation rental tech space, where a lot of the technology here is founded by people who are vacation rental professionals. They have been managing their own vacation rentals, and they've been in the industry a long time, but they don't know a lot about how to build a technology company. This is seen time over time in, in competition. You have companies that have a good marketing campaign. They say, we understand your needs as a property manager, but building technology is hard and it's expensive. And yep. if you don't know how to do that, it doesn't matter how well you know people, how how good you are in the industry and what your experience is, you still need to be able to build good technology. And that's where so many companies have have failed in this space. Interesting. You yourself build a tech team, a tech stack without a tech background. How did you do it? Well, first of all, I've been in in technology companies ever since 2000 one. So I had 15 years of experience. I was still uh, a student when I, I started working at a mobile games company. And my okay. founder is a full stack uh, developer. And he also had 15 years of experience. Okay, uh, that helps. <laughs> yeah. And our actually our, our third co-founder, he had successfully not only worked in technology, but also built and successfully exited technology companies. The so, power you know, of this a is, good founding team, right? Exactly. Yeah. So of course I'm the I'm the outsider, I guess, because I don't know how to how to write code. I stopped that when I was 15. But still, uh, I think having a whatever you do, make sure that you're you're good at that. So we're not <laughs> gonna pretend that we're the best on short-term rentals. Instead, we're just gonna build the best technology because that's what we know. Amazing. Marcus, collaboration superpower. If you could choose any person historic or alive, to do a partnership with, who would it be? Very good question. And you can't say Elon Musk or Steve Jobs, because that's boring. I would have to go with Alice Cooper. I think uh, yes. he's one of the most intriguing persons that I know. So he he grew to fame in the, in the 80s and the 90s by having these scary things. I mean... To be honest, Ozzy Osbourne is pretty cool too, but he's he's insane, <laughs> quite dement. Uh, but Alice Cooper, so he he has this public image, but then what he actually does is he lives on a farm with a family, and they have no neighbors, and they have nine children or something like that. Like he's he's just a family dad in his spare time, who every now and then goes on a trip to deliver an amazing heavy metal experience to people where they have bats and uh, ma crazy makeup and he gets decapitated. I, I find that really fascinating that you can uh, 
separate work and and life and have a good good balance i'd like to see what we can come up with there love that answer love that answer probably the best one so far to the question collaboration superpower marcus raider founder and ceo at hostaway thank you so much for coming to tangent today well thank you for having me if you like what you heard please subscribe rate and review tangent and share the show with a friend This episode is produced by me, Edward Cohen. Thanks for listening to Tangent. And remember, collaboration is our superpower. So stay curious and always be learning.